0: Welcome to ING's Think Aloud, where we try to make sense of the world in the most unbanky way we can. In today's episode… We are in a critical point of the pandemic right now. The trajectory of this pandemic is growing. If you look on our website and you actually look at the epicurve curve and the trajectory of the pandemic right now, it is growing exponentially. This is not the situation we want to be in 16 months into a pandemic. The World Health Organization's Dr Maria van Kirchhoff says global COVID cases have risen for seven straight weeks with more than 4.4 million cases of coronavirus last week alone. In Asia, second and third waves are raging in some countries with India reporting 200,000 new cases on Thursday. Yet, the region as a whole has coped better with the crisis than its peers in the West, and the IMF raised its forecast for the Asia-Pacific economy this week, calling for it to expand more than 7.5% in 2021. I'm Rebecca Byrne and today I'm talking to ING's Regional Head of Research in Asia, Rob Carnell, who joins me from Singapore. So, Rob, in in some parts of Asia, infection rates are soaring and the numbers in India are particularly worrying. But in general, the continent has been able to contain the pandemic much more successfully than in the West. Why is that?
1: It's a very good question. You're right. It's not everywhere. You can't say as a blanket rule that Asia has done much better than, let's say, the West, to give it a very vernacular name. But for the most part, it has. India, you're right. The numbers are, are, are soaring. They look very, very bad indeed indonesia and the philippines are the other two countries that have struggled uh, and are still struggling at the moment and at times malaysia has been a little bit worrying but at the moment the numbers are looking pretty good why that is though is a very difficult question and i think it boils down to a number of different things none of which may be the sole factor and some of these may not be factors at all but let's take one Um, this will trigger a number of people when i say it but mask wearing has been quite common in Asia. It's been common for years. If you get a cold here or a flu, you might still come to work, but you'll wear a mask. Uh, People would often have worn masks on public transport before this. So it wasn't that sort of a front to people's um, personal liberty that I think it has been in some countries, where people have almost expressed a political um, standpoint by wearing or not wearing a mask. It really was not a big deal and people adopted it very rapidly and very readily. And it's worn throughout. I mean, you don't just put it on on special occasions, you go outside, put your mask on. doesn't matter that you're outside. Uh, Public transport, of course, you're wearing a mask, inside you're wearing a mask. So that's one thing. The other is that we've, for the most part, we've been dealing with the original COVID here. And that has not been as infectious and hasn't been as deadly as some of the others. So perhaps things have been a little better for us. And we haven't really been tested by some of these other variants yet. Because the other thing that was very successful and was done very rapidly and hasn't changed really since the beginning was the closure of international borders. Yes, people can still travel, but it's really locked down. And if you remember in Europe when people were you know, flying off to, to, to go skiing and then coming back. And then after the first wave, um, you get the second wave, people were going out for the summer holidays and then bringing stuff back. That, with hindsight, was a, a mistake. And that didn't happen here. You know, people have been... Stuck at home, and in the Philippines case, literally stuck at home for over a year. Um, and uh, that was another factor. Um, cultural differences as well, perhaps not quite as sort of um, huggy, if I can use that word, as, uh, as, as perhaps some parts of Europe. Uh, particularly, you read, and this might be a completely apocryphal, but you read of, of ladies in a French department store removing masks to moi, each other, uh, before putting them back on. Um, you know, people aren't so, uh, so touchy-feely here. There's more of a sort of bowing culture. Handshakes aren't really so prevalent. So even though people have been fist bumping and elbow bumping and all those other things, um, that's probably also been a factor. There's talk about the weather as well. I'm not sure. I have certainly read some scientific reports that suggest that whilst sunlight and hot weather doesn't kill the COVID virus like, say, it does for the flu virus, the virus does seem to hang around better in colder, damper climates. And we do, let's be honest, we do seem to feel, uh, to have experienced a seasonal effect in Europe. Uh, You know, it's winter when things get bad and as the sun comes back out again and things warm up a bit, it seems to to mellow off a bit. And of course, that's been tied up with lockdowns and things. And the other thing, I suppose, is just the the skill and the speed with which some of the test-trace isolation methods have been drawn out. And that, I think, reflects the fact that we have a little bit more experience with these things in Asia than other parts of the world. And I'm referring really to SARS back in 2003. And whilst the, the numbers of people who were infected is, a, is tiny compared to COVID, it left an indelible mark. I mean, people will still walk around with a match in their pocket to use to, to push elevator buttons from that period. That's the sort of lessons I learned. So um, you know, I think it was taken a lot more seriously, both by people and also by politicians who, Again, outside of Asia, seems to be much more concerned about trying to reopen economies as quickly as possible and get things back to normal, which, with hindsight, again, seems to have often been much too open, much too quickly, and possibly just shouldn't have been done at all in certain places. So, that and, um, and, and MERS as well was another factor. MERS was another one of these, uh, it's actually another SARS virus, um, but that was uh, originally from the Middle East. That, there was an outbreak in Korea, and out of that, they developed quite a big biotech industry. So when when COVID came out, they had an almost ready to go test kit. So they were way ahead of everybody else, which enabled them to really lock this thing down very quickly, get lots of testing done, isolate all the people that were problematic, and they never had a national lockdown in Korea.
0: But GDP was hit pretty badly in 2020 across Asia. So why was that if the pandemic was relatively mild?
1: Yes, good point. Um, It would have been nice to say we we had a mild version or a much less severe version of the pandemic than in Europe and the United States, and we're reaping the benefits now, but we didn't. The GDP numbers do look quite awful uh, across most parts of Asia. You can single out a couple of exceptions. China, of course, and Taiwan as well, have actually achieved growth, real positive growth in 2020. I can't think of any other countries on the planet that did that. So they are the exceptions, but most parts of Asia did still suffer quite considerable GDP damage. Singapore, for example, was down something like, you know, 6%. So in no way better than, say, most of the countries in Europe. Why? Well, because we, we have, I think, a very much lower political tolerance for COVID here. So even when the numbers of infections were very low, restrictions on mobility and people's uh, movement were put in place very aggressively, and they were kept in place. And even when the numbers started to drop, they were kept in place. They had to drop a heck of a long way before we were allowed to do some of the basic things that we we are beginning to take for granted again now. So that hurt the economy, uh, as well as which a lot of these countries are very reliant on tourism. Think about Thailand, for example. Singapore is a big transport hub. You know, that just ceased overnight. Big chunk of your economy just suddenly stopped. That's gonna hurt. Uh, And so I think for for many of those countries, you'd throw Indonesia into that as well, Malaysia as well. Southeast Asia in particular suffered very, very badly from that. So, yeah, restrictions were put in place uh, at a drop of a hat much more aggressively than would have happened in the UK, for example, where the economy would have been pretty much fully open with uh, the cases that we've had in Singapore. And that's done most of the damage.
0: But does this set Asia up for a pretty strong bounce in 2021?
1: You'd like to think so, wouldn't you? It'd be nice to think, yeah, we've had all that pain in 2020, but now 2021 is here, and we're unwinding that, at least if nothing else, the base effects should deliver some pretty solid growth. And to some extent, that's true. Although, of course, everyone's figures at the moment look a little bit crazy. With the comparison in 2020 being so awful, you can achieve some great looking headline GDP numbers without really having to try too hard. But we should be doing even better. And I think one of the reasons that we're not bouncing back stronger and harder and faster uh, than we are. And Bear in mind, most economies in the region won't recover pre-pandemic levels until 2022. One of the biggest reasons for that is that the vaccine rollout here has been really slow. It's barely got going in some places, which is really hampering things. It means that the, the restrictions that remain in place are remaining in place for longer. It's going to be a lot further down the track before we can fully open up the economies and fully open up freedom of movement that we're we're all looking for uh, and hoping for compared to you know the UK even compared to Europe which was you know a laggard at the beginning uh, is leading most countries in Asia.
0: Well I guess you know in some countries if the pandemic hasn't been so bad there's sort of less urgency to vaccinate the population which countries are doing sort of relatively better and relatively worse on the vaccination front.
1: It's a somewhat binary answer to this. Countries that are doing very well uh, is basically one, and that's Singapore. We have managed to get more physical vaccine here. And this has been one of the biggest problems. You mentioned the, the sort of um, the local uh, sense of urgency in getting vaccinated, and that is definitely a feature. You know, you talk to a lot of people here who would be eligible for a vaccine now, and they're, they're hanging on, they're waiting. They want to be absolutely sure that it's safe. They don't feel under any particular threat. All the restrictions in terms of people coming in from overseas are largely in place. So they'll they'll hang on. And if they're not planning on going traveling as soon as uh, the borders are open again, there's no enormous need for them in their minds to get vaccinated. But the real solid, the biggest factor here is just the absence of physical vaccines. You guys had them first. You know, we didn't make this stuff here. Um, The people who manufactured these things largely decided to serve themselves first. You know, you totally understand that, but it meant that there was a queue. And countries that generally got their vaccines next were the ones who were prepared to pay up for it. Other countries, places like uh, the Philippines, uh, didn't even get their first vaccine landing on the tarmac in Manila until March. They didn't have any. Um, And the numbers that have come through, relatively small numbers, there's been a bit through the COVAX system, but really it's been a dribble arriving uh, it's beginning to pick up as the West gets itself sorted, um, but that's been the principal factor. One other thing I should mention, of course, is that there's been some there's been some bad history with some vaccines here in the region. There have been dengue vaccines that have been connected with large numbers of deaths. There have been incidences where governments in certain countries have gone hot and cold on certain vaccines. I'm thinking of the NMR vaccine, which in Japan was taken off the shelves and put back on and taken off leaving the public with a sense that i'm not really sure whether this is safe or not and people are much more cautious about vaccines i think than they'd be in the uk where if you uh, or, or europe where if you offered most people a vaccine they'd, they'd pretty much rip their arm off to get it right
0: one of the things that's been helping to fuel optimism about the recovery in the West is that it's the huge fiscal support, not only Biden's infrastructure plan, but also the EU recovery fund. Yep. But Asia doesn't have anything like this. Is that going to be a problem?
1: Yeah, I mean, it, it doesn't have anything quite like this. It's not right to, to think that Asia is not being supportive with fiscal policy. It is, but it was very supportive in 2020. And it's difficult to kind of supersize that for a second year. So in most countries, the support that's in place now is, you know, in in absolute sort of dollar terms, if you like, it's still very considerable, but it's not the massive support that we got last year. And there's a sense with with fiscal policy, it's more than a sense, it's a sort of reality, that unless you keep on ramping up spending year after year to an even bigger amount, then you actually turn fiscal policy from being very expansionary into a slight drag. Now, part of this is related to what's happening to the economies as well. Um, And you can't just look at deficit numbers and go, "Okay, well, your deficit is is smaller, so it's not as expansionary, so it's contractionary. Um, More revenue is coming in as economies open up and people spend more, so sales taxes and income taxes recover and so forth. And that does eat into a bit of it. But there there is definitely an element of fiscal drag coming from the fact that the, the huge dollops of cash that were thrown around in 2020 quite rightly, to to make sure that there was an economy left to recover when this was all over. That money isn't as present in such large amounts this time round. And yeah, I think that's going to be a factor which means it's not going to be quite so exciting uh, as, as say, in the US in particular, where, you know, we've got the the, the 1.9 trillion Biden rescue plan and possibly, you know, two plus trillion of additional infrastructure spending as well. That's not really on the cards anywhere in Asia at the moment.
0: Has there been any sign of angst among investors in Asian markets over the recent rise in U.S. Treasury yields? The IMF warned um, on Tuesday that if yields rise faster than markets expect, it could have negative spillover effects for Asia. So that's got to be a risk, right?
1: It's definitely a risk. We're looking at this quite a lot. Um, At the moment, though, it hasn't really been that evident. If you look at, uh, let's say, bond markets across the region, There have been sell-offs in them, but for the most part, they haven't been that much worse than, say, what's happened to U.S. Treasuries. The the bond markets of Southeast Asia have sold off a little bit more uh, than U.S. Treasuries, but not much. You know, are talking like 10, 10 or 15 basis points, something like that. The Philippines is the exception. And I think what's happened there is they're one of the few economies in the region that has quite a or has the appearance of an inflation problem. Their inflation did pick up quite dramatically recently, and on top of the fact that they had previously been quite aggressive in cutting monetary policy, uh, you know, their inflation is now substantially higher than their policy rates. In other words, for uh, an emerging market Asian economy, they're running substantially negative real policy rates. Typically, when you get to around zero real policy rates, so the actual, uh, you know, central bank policy rate, minus inflation or minus inflation expectations, when you get to around zero, as a, an emerging market, you go, yeah, it's probably as far as the market will take it. Now, things have obviously changed. We've got all sorts of weird stuff going on in the world these days. You can get away with far more than you used to. And some countries in the region have dabbled with various sorts of unorthodox policies as well. India very recently just expanded their, well, uh, invented a new quantitative easing program, for example, which didn't help their currency and hasn't helped their bond market that much either. But that's with the exception of the Philippines, that's really the exception that proves the rule. So actually, it hasn't yet been an issue. Say so the Indonesian bond market hasn't sold off much worse than Singapore's or Australia's for that matter. So it's not evident yet, but that's not to say it won't be. And you know, we are concerned that those perennially vulnerable countries of the region, and that would be Indonesia, Philippines, India, the ones that do normally run current account deficits, could be in for a tougher time. Uh, should things continue to, to move in, in the direction that they did until, you know, a couple of weeks ago when things did, did seem to moderate a little bit. We're not ruling out further rises in US Treasuries. And as a result, we're not ruling out further rises in local currency bond markets either.
0: And is the same true for Asian FX?
1: Yeah, it's it's been a, a weird um, period for FX. On the whole, Asian currencies are somewhat softer than they were against the US dollar. And when that happens, when the dollar is appreciating against these currencies, again, the ones that you would worry about, the difficulty is if your, if your currency is weakening, your central bank, when, you, when your economy is struggling, is not going to want to put up rates to protect it. So there is that, that tension that comes when you've got an environment of, of dollar strength. You know, By definition, the currencies in the region will be weaker. And those economies I mentioned earlier uh, are the ones who are likely to suffer more in trying to stem those outflows. Having said that, the domestic demand in all of those countries is so weak at the moment that their external deficits have really shrunk. And and as a result of that, currencies like the Philippine peso have actually been remarkably stable. You know, it's one of the ones that you'd have put on a pedestal, say, look, when things start to look a bit iffy, this is a currency that you don't want to be holding too much on. But it's held up really well. And one of the currencies that's actually suffered the most has been the Korean won. And this is a country, an economy with a vast current account surplus, huge trade in goods surplus, one of the the biggest, the fifth biggest trading economy in the world, doing fantastically well uh, in an environment where there's a global shortage of semiconductors. One of the things that it and Taiwan produce in absolute abundance, better than anyone else in the world. And yet its currency is just being whipped around. Whenever things are a little bit shaky, the Korean won is the currency that seems to get it in the neck most. And then, of course, by extension, when things start to look great again, the Korean won rallies the most. So it's been all over the place, whipping around. It's hard to say that, you know, in the environments of the, the Treasury sell offs that we've seen and some of the, the dollar uh, moves that we've seen, that one, one currency is doing particularly worse than any other. It almost depends on the day that you look at it, whether we're on a risk on risk off mode, what the environment is, but as yet, the currencies have been reasonably stable. We've seen a bit of a sell-off, but nothing really dramatic, nothing to get too worried about yet.
0: Okay, Rob Carnell, ING's Regional Head of Research in Asia. Thanks very
1: much. Thanks, Rebecca. It's a pleasure.
0: This podcast has been prepared by ING solely for information purposes, irrespective of a particular user's means, financial situation, or investment objective. The information does not constitute investment recommendation, nor is it investment, legal or tax advice, or an offer of solicitation to purchase or sell any financial instrument. Read more at think.ing.com content dash disclaimer.